Good morning. My name is Ilya Shapiro. I'm the director of the Robert A. Levy Center for Constitutional Studies at the Cato Institute, and you're here for a book forum for After Trump, Reconstructing the Presidency, uh, a rich book that I can definitely recommend. Very timely, almost as timely as mine, Supreme Disorder, Judicial Nominations in the Politics of America's Highest Court. Uh, but now that we are about to approach the After Trump era, uh, Bob Bauer and Jack Goldsmith provide a comprehensive roadmap for reforming the presidency. After going through rich descriptions of the relevant history, background law, institutional structure, and legal and political norms, and frankly, all of that is probably more interesting to me even than the reform proposals, but they do offer 50 concrete proposals on topics ranging from conflicts of interest and foreign influence on elections to war powers and executive branch vacancies. All of the proposals are prefaced by a chapter that explains how Donald Trump and his predecessors conducted the presidency in ways that justified these reforms. Now, I'll briefly introduce the authors and our esteemed commentator before letting them start the discussion. Jack Goldsmith is the Henry L. Shattuck uh, Professor of Law at Harvard University, where he teaches and writes on constitutional and international law, national security, and internet law. Before Harvard, Jack served in the Bush administration as Assistant Attorney General in the Office of Legal Counsel at the Justice Department, which is where, full disclosure, my wife works now, uh, and as Special Counsel to the General Counsel of the De Department of Defense. More importantly, he previously taught at the University of Chicago Law School, where he was my professor. Jack clerked for Justice Kennedy, Fourth Circuit Judge uh, J. Harvey Wilkinson, and, this is interesting, Judge George Aldrich on the Iran-U.S. Claims Tribunal, so varied experience that he brings to this table. Bob Bauer is counsel to the Biden campaign and transition on temporary leave from being professor of practice and a distinguished scholar in residence at New York University School of Law. Bob joined the NYU faculty after more than 35 years as an election and regulatory lawyer in private practice, as well as a stint as White House counsel to President Barack Obama. And in 2013, the president named Bob to be co-chair of the president, Presidential Commission on Election Administration. Commenting on Jack and Bob's work will be J. Michael Ludig, executive vice president at Boeing after having been the company's general counsel for 13 years. More importantly for our purposes, uh, Ludig joined Boeing after serving 15 years on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fourth Circuit. At the time of his appointment in 1991, Judge Ludig was the youngest federal circuit judge in the country. Before joining the bench, he also served as Assistant Attorney General for the Office of Legal Counsel and Counselor to the Attorney General. Uh, and Judge Ludig clerked for Chief Justice Warren Berger and then Judge Antonin Scalia. So uh, Rich, uh, August, distinguished company we're in here. And Jack, I'll turn it over to you uh, to explain the uh, overview of your book and several proposals. Sure. Thank you very much. I want to thank Elia and the Cato Institution for hosting this, and especially to Judge Ludig for agreeing to comment on the book. So Bob Bauer and I wrote a book called After Trump Reconstructing the Presidency. We began it about 18 months ago. Uh, sorry, that's not right. We began, we, about a year ago, I guess it was. Um, and the theory that we had about a year ago was that there would be a point when Trump left the presidency, whether it was in 2021 or 2025, where there would be a big debate in this country akin to the debate we had in the 1970s about whether the president of the United States was properly accountable to Congress and the people 
and properly constrained either by laws or norms in conducting the office. And uh, that was our bet in writing this book. The book is basically, um, it starts, as Elia said, with a background chapter about how we thought about reform of the presidency. That's what I'm going to speak about briefly here. And then we have 13 or so chapters full of reforms that are um, many dozens of reforms, concrete reforms. We wrote the book in a way to try to make it accessible to a general audience, especially in explain, explaining the historical background to uh, all of the areas of law that Trump and norms that Trump challenged. And uh, but we did get into and our chapters do have uh, some serious legal analysis, because at the end, in thinking about reform, we think that the devil is in the details. So basically, um, the book begins from the premise, and it's not a premise that everyone shares, but we do, that Trump conducted the presidency in a way that raised questions, as I just said, about whether the accountability constraints and the legal and normative constraints on the presidency were adequate. His abuse of presidential power was kind of was unique. It wasn't uh, all presidents, especially in recent decades, I would say presidents uh, going back longer than that, stretch executive power when they think it's necessary to achieve some important end. Trump has has discombobulated presidential constraints in ways not like his predecessors. A lot of what, and I'm just going to give a few examples of the types of things he's done that 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 is central to understanding reform and that is somewhat, I would say, unique to Trump. Basically, his uh, his characteristic has been to abuse power more than to violate law. And I'm not saying he hasn't violated the law. He has in some respects, and he's certainly skirted close to the edge in a lot of respects. But the characteristic move for Trump is to violate norms, the non-legal constraints on the presidency that have been a kind of assumed and governing for at least since the, since the 1970s. And he's done so in a way that tends to merge the institutional presidency with his personal interests. Uh, and I'll just give you a few examples that will be familiar not disclosing his taxes, not explaining his finances, mixing his business with his public office and the profits of his business with public office, um, intervening publicly in cases, uh, ongoing investigations in the Justice Department to protect himself, uh, calling on the Justice Department, usually without any plausible basis to prosecute and investigate his political opponents, using control over diplomacy and law enforcement to nudge foreign powers to help him win the election. It was in that context that John Bolton in his memoirs said that Trump committed obstruction of justice as a way of life. Using his pardon powers in self-serving ways, not the first president to do that certainly, but the percentage of pardons that have been politically and personally self-serving with Trump are really extraordinary. Uh, and then during the transition, uh, everything he did during the transition just about was norm-violative, norm not conceding when it was pretty clear that he had won, holding off on the ascertainment process, uh, telling the big lies that he told and the like. Those were not legal violations, but they were serious norm violations uh, that were sharp departures from past presidents. All of these things have the characteristic of uh, demagoguery, attacking institutions, attacking elite institutions especially, and especially related to the rule of law. So just a few more things before I turn it over to Bob. One objection to our project is we focus on the presidency uh, and we, we offer reforms of the presidency and we kind of assume the other institutions of government and of our, demo of our democracy as we find them, the courts, the Congress, the press, the electoral system, you might think, and there would be a good argument, that 
our government needs reforming less in the presidency than say in Congress that we need that a lot of the problems in the presidency and we agree with this are excesses of delegation to the president and that Congress has not exercised its constitutional responsibilities. You might think there are problems in the electoral system. We focus on the presidency for two reasons. One, that's where our expertise lies. And two, we're pretty confident that that's going to be the focus of the first round of reform and the and and also the chances the greatest chance for the chances where the greatest chances lie for the likelihood of reform. Um, but we don't purport to hold out our um, our reform proposals as comprehensive responses either to the um, either either to the problems in the presidency or the problems in our government. I'll just say one last thing and turn it over because I've gone over. We don't believe in radical reform of the presidency. We believe in a strong presidency. And we think a strong presidency is necessary to make the government work, but we believe in a strong but constrained and a politically and legally accountable presidency. And with that, I'll turn it over to Bob. Thank you, Jack. And thank you very much uh, to Cato, uh, to Ilya for hosting, uh, to Judge Ludic for agreeing to comment. I'll just talk a little bit, give you an overview of the book. It's divided into three parts, as Ilya suggests, each chapter provides uh, some background so that we understand Trump's conduct in context. And we see where he's building on what other successors have done and taking it, in many cases, leagues farther. In other cases where we could say he's a genuine innovator in trashy norms or in expressing indifference to laws and norms. And then we look deeply at the conduct of Trump in office and set up the conversation in the third part of each chapter which is a discussion in detail about the reforms. And what I just want to say briefly here about the layout of the book uh, is, and this tracks Jack's point about the devil being in the details, our goal is to be pretty direct and uh, detailed about what precisely we're proposing and why, and also uh, to challenge some received wisdoms in a lot of cases about how to solve particular problems. So we both want to be detailed and we also want to uh, reconceive as imaginatively as possible how a reform might be tailored to these circumstances and how it might work. So, for example, everybody can agree, uh, some people refer to it as low-hanging fruit, uh, that there's an issue around the presidential disclosure of tax returns. Once it was governed by norms, then Donald Trump demonstrated that both in the campaign and thereafter, a presidential candidate and a president could survive the refusal uh, to disclose tax returns. And so, the question is, what next? And if you go to the position that we do, which is that the norm having failed, we need a statutory requirement for the production of tax returns, then there's some significant design issues. And those turn out uh, to require some considerable attention to detail and include, among other things, uh, reminding the reader that the IRS conducts and has since the Carter administration audits of presidential tax returns those are never made public. We believe that they should be made public, and we set that out, uh, as well as other requirements for making a tax disclosure regime work as well as it possibly can. Similarly, when we turn to the question of financial conflict of interest, uh, we talk about blind trusts and we oppose their use. We don't believe uh, completely severed from the management of their business interests. Uh, and that whatever financial interest they have ought to be accessible to the public. And there we give the reasons why uh, in the book. And that's just, I think, one, a couple of particular points about financial conflict of interest in a longer chapter uh, that I just wanted to highlight here. 
when we talk about foreign state influence uh, over an administration, in particular in a campaign where a foreign government and in the Trump's campaign, that wasn't the only time in our history that this has happened, that a foreign government uh, strikes an alliance or seeks to strike a political alliance uh, with an American administration or with a presidential candidate uh, seeking the office. We uh, recognize that there's been a lot of talk about reforming the campaign finance laws to capture things of value that pass between a presidential campaign and a foreign government. But there's a broader problem uh, that's presented by any kind of strategic political alliance aimed at winning an election between a foreign government and a presidential campaign. And it's not merely a campaign finance issue. We try to explain why that's the case. And so in part one, we address a number of issues like that. We discuss ways to constrain the exercise of the pardon power, ways to address though this is very hard, uh, the manner in which presidents, and Richard Nixon is a rich example, but Donald Trump certainly have gone nose to nose with the press and sought to curtail uh, the press's legitimate function uh, and uh, where necessary, where they deemed it necessary to try to sort of potentially intimidate or harass it. In part two of the book, we go to something that's really fundamental to uh, one of our concerns, and that is the relationship between the president and the Department of Justice. We range, we address a range of proposals for appropriately depoliticizing where depoliticizing should be done, the operation of the Department of Justice to assure that it does not appear to be operating uh, to advance partisan political goals. It crosses a particular line that we believe can be drawn. We have an extensive uh, and detailed chapter on the special counsel regulations. And in fact, we preprint in the appendix our proposed revision of the special counsel regulations, one of the innovations of which uh, I think is to protect uh, the special counsel's role as a fact finder, but also to make it very clear in the allocation of roles that the attorney general ultimately does make the final call, an issue that created a great deal of confusion, obviously, in the Mueller bar era. Uh, and we discuss other issues that are associated uh, with controversies within the bureaucracy uh, where components of the bureaucracy seek to investigate a presidential campaign or seek to institute a counterintelligence investigation of a president. And we talk about the risks there. And we conclude with the only section in which Jack and I actually have a disagreement and write separately sort of point counterpoint. And that is what to do about the accounting uh, for Donald Trump's uh, ongoing legal proceedings and others that may in fact be initiated, uh, what does that mean? How does a, a subsequent administration like the Biden administration incoming deal with uh, the accounting of uh, Donald Trump's conduct, the investigation pending in the Southern District? Obviously, there are state and local investigations not under federal control, and the ever-present question of whether Trump would seek or expect a pardon or self-pardon. And then finally, in part three, we discuss a series of issues having to do with war powers, including one in which we make some proposals to introduce some appropriate uh, consultative limits on the president's exercise of nuclear, uh, over nuclear power, over the deployment of nuclear force. We have a chapter on vacancies, and then a series of um, recommendations uh, that are relevant to recent debates, the use of the Insurrection Act by the president uh, to deploy force within the United States, the use of the president's emergency powers and the uh, president's uh, standoffs with Congress over the subpoenas uh, for presidential um, 
for records of the executive branch in the course of congressional oversight and investigative hearings. So uh, that's just a very brief overview. But I want to emphasize, again, devil is in the details. And it's also important in our book, we think, to break from some standard ways of thinking about these issues and introduce what we hope are some uh, usefully different ways of looking at what these what shape these reforms might take. Thank you. Thanks, Bob. Uh, and we'll turn to Judge Ludig, but I'll remind everyone we already have some questions coming through. Uh, you can leave those on our website if you're watching it on Cato's website, or if you're on social media, you can use the hashtag CatoScotus, S-C-O-T-U-S. Judge, please go ahead. Thank you, Ilya, Bob, and Jack. Uh, I'm honored to be here today at the Cato Institute. Um, Bob and Jack have written a masterful blueprint for healing the fissures and the bulwark that safeguards the modern constitutional presidency. These fissures erupted into spectacular view under President Donald Trump, presenting a compelling need for a once in a constitutional lifetime reform of the presidency. Seizing this opportunity, Bob and Jack have written what likely will be for many decades, the seminal book on the subject. In the brief time that I have, I'm, I'm going to comment on four sets of their proposals, those relating to foreign interference in American presidential elections, the special counsel, investigations of a prior administration, and investigations of counterintelligence investigations by a prior administration. The latter three sets of proposals will be of particular interest come January 20th, as the new president decides whether to investigate President Trump for possible crimes committed while in office. But I will turn to the election interference proposals first, because I agree with and favor all of these excellent proposals, and in my view, they need uh, little discussion. Among these proposals are prohibiting mutual assistance agreements between presidential campaigns and foreign governments, requiring campaigns to report to the FBI any contacts from foreign states offering campaign support or assistance, clarifying that prohibited foreign national contributions can include things of non-monetary value, such as information, and requiring the Attorney General to approve and oversee criminal or counterintelligence investigations of presidential candidates or their campaigns. Collectively, these proposals would go a long way towards staving off foreign interference in our presidential elections, at least as that interference would occur through the candidates and their campaigns. At the same time, these proposals would provide an appropriate means for investigating such interference, which we did not have when we needed it most. Turning then in somewhat greater detail to the other three sets of proposals, uh, I believe, one, I believe we should consider a more substantive trigger for appointment of a special counsel than that the attorney general determined based on credible information or allegations that a criminal investigation is warranted. As Bob and Jack themselves seem to recognize, uh, this is little, if any, better, I think, than the existing regulatory hair trigger. I think we need a standard with more bite, perhaps something along the lines that the AG must determine based upon credible information that the official may have violated the criminal law. I'm not wedded to this or any other formulation, but if we're going to open up the special counsel regulations, we ought to decide once and for all on a substantive limiting standard 
it imposes on the AG a, a meaningful obligation for appointment of a special counsel. If, if this standard were tightened down, I would be comfortable requiring a special counsel in both instances that our authors propose, investigations of an incumbent president and investigations of a prior president. Though for today, I would still reserve judgment as to the need for special counsels for other senior officials. I am less sure of the need for these. I would not make counterintelligence investigations of a president a jurisdictional trigger for appointment of a special counsel as uh, the authors would. I don't think that a special counsel appointed from outside the government is the right person to, to undertake counterintelligence investigations. These investigations are different beasts from ordinary criminal investigations. They require different qualifications and expertise as well as different access to people and information. Perhaps we should consider deputizing as a special counsel a qualified official or even two if we are going to insist uh, uh, on a special counsel for intelligence and counterintelligence investigations. Uh, individuals from drawn from appropriate government agencies or maybe we should task the Assistant Attorney General for National Security for these kinds of investigations. Relatedly, Bob and Jack propose that any investigation of a counterintelligence investigation that was conducted by a prior administration be conducted by the DOJ Inspector General rather than a Department of Justice prosecutor, and that a special counsel be required if the Attorney General uncovers, uh, if the IG uncovers evidence of criminal wrongdoing. I question the need for this rule, which anticipates another investigation like John Durham's. Regardless, however, I have misgivings about tasking the IG with this responsibility. I simply don't believe the IG is qualified or has the wherewithal to conduct such an investigation. And last, for the reasons noted, I would not favor eventual appointment of a special counsel in any event to conduct these investigations of investigations. Next, I fully agree with the substantive criminal law proposals to statutorily provide that the president can obstruct justice through any of three means, through an act of self-protection while he, he or she is a subject or a target of an investigation, two, through the corrupt exercise of the pardon power, or three, if the president intervenes to affect the outcome of elections. There would be little question as to the constitutionality of any of these criminal proscriptions on the president. I actually believe that the Supreme Court would uphold a statutory prohibition against presidential self-pardons as Bob and Jack propose. Uh, although there are certainly others who have already written in disagreement to, to uh, that assessment of the constitutionality. I had this thought this morning while preparing for today's discussion, so I hesitate even to raise it here, but might it be that a president's self-pardon for criminal conduct that has never been charged be considered obstruction of justice? and on that basis be constitutionally prohibited. I understand that the immediate doctrinal inconsistencies that, 
that this uh, this position uh, uh, takes on, but I believe we should at least give some thought to this line of reasoning. Finally, uh, I would propose one change to the special counsel regulations that Bob and Jack do not discuss. I would require a special counsel in every instance to affirmatively decide whether he believes an official who he investigates did or did not violate the criminal laws and also whether he recommends prosecution for that offense. I thought it was an abdication of responsibility, not to mention a grave disservice to the country that Robert Mueller refused to decide whether the president had obstructed justice through any of the dozens or so different obstructive acts that he investigated. So uh, with time short with that, and before anyone has time to ask me questions about these thoughts on after Trump, I will turn the floor back over to Ilya so that our patient audience can instead ask their probing questions of the authors of this superb book, a book which, with all respect to Bob and Jack, and my apologies to Leo Tolstoy, this past week I have taken to calling War and Peace, Volume 2. Over to you, Elliot. <laughs> Thanks very much, Judge. There's a lot to dig into there, and uh, a lot of questions have built up. So uh, I will reserve my moderator's prerogative to ask uh, questions that I had prepared uh, and pick up on something you said, Judge, that picks up on something that several questioners uh, are uh, asking, and that's about pardons. Um, William Anderson asks that... Uh, uh, notes that uh, uh, Trump has discussed with advisors whether to grant preemptive pardons uh, or in general pardons, general broad pardons to his children, his son-in-law, uh, Rudy Giuliani, and perhaps others. Uh, what about, uh, you know, are there possible reforms to the pardon power that you now would uh, uh, add uh, in light of these discussions? Preemptive uh, pardons in general, self-pardons, these sorts of, of, uh, of issues. Jack or Bob, who wants to take that? Bob, you want me to take that? Yeah, yeah so we have a chapter on. So first of all, thank you, Judge. Those were outstanding comments. And I'd, I'd love to talk to you about them offline if we don't get to talk about it here. Very grateful for the close read and really great comments. Thank you so much. On the pardon power, the pardon power is extraordinarily broad. It, it's uh, it's given in absolute terms in Article 2 with only the exception for it doesn't extend to state crimes. It's limited to federal crimes, and it, you can't pardon for impeachment. Otherwise, there are no limits on the pardon power, and the Supreme Court has interpreted it broadly, and presidents for 240 or so years have interpreted it broadly. There is, at least by practice, uh, preemptive pardons are permitted. Uh, there have been examples of that throughout history. Um, we focus our reform efforts on two areas. One, and which we think are both the most extreme examples of abuse and fortunately the areas where um, um, reform is possible in constraining the president's abuse of the pardon power. But let me say that no reform, absent constitutional reform, can stop a president from pardoning friends, pardoning uh, cronies, as long as it doesn't rise to an independent legal objection, which I'll get to in a second. So basically one, we think that while the pardon power is very broad, it is possible to place criminal prohibitions on pardons that are given either uh, in exchange for a bribe or uh, in connection with obstruction of justice. 
Those are separate crimes. It wouldn't be a burden on the pardon power itself to criminalize those separate crimes. Attorney General Barr, in his testimony, has agreed that these things are possible. He has a very broad view of executive power, as do I in many contexts. And I think that such a reform, and we think that such a reform, for reasons we explained, would be possible. And it's also possible, I should say, even absent statutory reform and making clear in, in the criminal code that a bribe in exchange for obstruction of justice or, excuse me, a pardon in exchange for obstruction of justice or a bribe would be criminalized. It's possible that the current statutes, as they are, even in the absence of a plain statement, would extend to such things. And so we're going to probably see this playing out over the next several weeks, I suggest. But we have proposals for that, and we think those are the most serious and concerning abuses of the pardon power. The kind of things that are being floated and discussed now, um, um, there was just the story yesterday, uh, a disclosure that there's a DOJ investigation of a possible bribe for pardon scheme. We don't know many details yet, but we think that's the kind of thing that might be prohibited now, consistent with the pardon power, and can be clarified to be prohibited. And the second area for reform is the idea of a self-pardon, whether the president can pardon himself. Uh, there's no case law on this. Scholars are across the board on this. The, the Office of Legal Counsel has stated, and the Justice Department has stated in a sentence that self-pardons are not allowed, but it didn't provide much explanation. We think Congress can and should prohibit self-pardons. Uh, whether the court would uphold that or not, as Judge Ludig suggested, at a minimum, it would be Congress weighing in on the constitutionality of a self-pardon, and we think would at least have some impact on the court's constitutional judgment. So that's where we that's where we focus our reforms. We think to go much beyond that, I'm, I'm not sure about Judge Ludig's more uh, ambitious proposal about a self-pardon itself being obstruction of justice absent if it's done absent a charge. But anything much more than that does run into constitutional problems, we think. But j just to put a finer point on that, because we're getting a lot of finer point questions about the pardon power. Uh, for example, Andrew asks, could with simple legislation, could Congress stop the granting of pardons uh, between election day and inauguration day, bar from future employment, federal employment, the, re the recipient of a pardon, other you know legislative fixes like that, or would all of those run into uh, separation of powers or other constitutional concerns? I believe that all of those that you mentioned would not, Congress could not legislate in that way consistent with the pardon power. The pardon power has been granted an enormously broad scope by the courts and through practice. And uh, we, we looked hard at ways to limit it more. Some people think there are ways to limit it a bit more. But simple statutory fix to outlaw it during while the president is still in office during the transition, in our judgment, would not be constitutional. At least I think that's what Bob thinks. We didn't address that. That's what I think. Uh, Bob, do you agree with that? Absolutely. Yeah. Great. Well, let's move on to uh, we have a question from a Cato sponsor, Paul Lindhorst, who asks, how do we prevent the executive from falling back? into the habit of issuing regulations without proper hearings and comment periods that was so common under Obama, uh, but has changed somewhat uh, under Trump. And I'll, I'll broaden that a little bit to talk about, um, you know, Obama's pen and phone, uh, Bush's, you know, people complained about his signing statements and other uh, 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 abuses. Uh, how different is, is that? And, and, you know, do any of your reforms address the kind of abuse of the administrative process or executive actions? 
Uh, I think that kind of falls in my jurisdiction as well. Bob, do you want to take you want me to take that? So, so there's a whole, we, we don't address that question specifically. We don't address that question at that level of abstraction specifically. There are a whole set of issues that I know are of serious interest to people at Cato and people in Washington and to us about excessive delegations of power from Congress to the president and the president's very aggressive use of executive power on top of those delegations to basically issue regulations and executive orders that are at the edge of lawfulness. We don't get into those problems. Those are problems that have been a persistent problem in the presidency going back many generations, excuse me, many presidencies. We wanted to address those issues and ran out of time, but we don't address them specifically. We addressed in the context of separation of powers issues and excessive delegations, we only addressed the war powers, the Vacancies Reform Act, and emergency powers, but not the general problem of the administrative state. I mean, that's a huge problem. And it's a huge issue, and there are a whole array of reforms on the table that have been pretty thoroughly fleshed out, some statutory, some institutional, some by changes in constitutional doctrine at the Supreme Court level, like, for example, rethinking the Chevron doctrine. Um, All right. Just, uh, uh, please. Judge Ludig has a comment. On, on a related point that, that you raised implicitly uh, with respect to signing statements, uh, I do believe that there is a, a, it's salutary to uh, proceed with some of these proposals that Bob and Jack have made, particularly statutory changes, even if the constitutionality of those changes uh, are, are not, uh, you know, well known uh, or agreed upon. Uh, much like when the president signs legislation and accompanies it with a, a signing statement that gives his view that various provisions of it may be unconstitutional. Okay. Um, since we're talking kind of in level of generality about the executive power uh, and the power of the presidency, Stephen Kotkin another former uh, professor of mine at, at Princeton, asks, what is your definition of a strong presidency, since you do endorse a strong but constrained presidency? And what are the ways we measure and determine this and, and make sure that strong president uh, doesn't uh, go, um, you know, doesn't become a, an imperial president? Jack, do you want me to open on that? As you wish, Bob. Go I'm ahead. Happy to, happy to, yeah, happy to take a crack. I mean, it's a very difficult thing to measure. One of the uh, problems uh, that we have to confront in this area is that each political party in our polarized process wants its own very strong president, but not the other party's very strong president. And one of the guidelines that we set out for assessing the reforms in the book is what we call a golden rule type guideline, which is in assessing a reform, is it one that you're just as happy to have your own favorite president live with as the president you may not like so much live with? Uh, at the same time, and we lay this out, we quote Arthur Schlesinger Jr.'s famous formulation on this point, the president is an indispensable center of energy uh, in the executive, uh, has the ability to respond uh, nimbly and as necessary uh, to address issues in ways uh, that our legislature cannot. Uh, in some cases should not, and the same uh, certainly holds true for the judiciary. 
but um, we so it's a very hard question of you know how do you take this center of energy and particularly as a political process becomes more um, polarized as you have uh, very much on display a separation of parties and not of powers you know how do you decide at what point the presidency in the quest of you know nimbleness and effectiveness and whatever uh, begins to uh, reshape the institution in ways that are not consistent with constitutional expectations or legal safeguards. A very, very hard question, but we return to it throughout the book, and we try constantly to seek balance in the design and the structure of the reforms we propose uh, with precisely the the, the qu question that um, uh, the professor raises here, is how do you manage to maintain institutional strength while um, guarding against uh, not just evident um, institutional overreach, but ever creeping institutional overreach as each administration uh, builds uh, on the on the last. And then the last point I just want to make is to reimagine that the dangers that we describe in the book are not ones that are likely to disappear uh, with Trump and that the model of the sort of populist uh, presidency, um, speaking for the people, delivering the results that people want, breaking through every barrier, refusing uh, every form of resistance, trying to overcome every obstacle. Uh, you know, that is a problem. That is a style of presidential leadership, a model, a rhetorical appeal that we think uh, are, is going to continue to occur, which is what makes uh, setting out on a reform path uh, particularly urgent. To pick up on that, Bob, you and Jack write that while Trump did claim, quote, a right to do whatever I want as president and has shown little patience for the idea that law meaningfully constrains his freedom of action, uh, the argument for reform does not rest primarily on Trump's defiance of the law. Trump's law-breaking bark, I love this uh, sentence, Trump's law-breaking bark uh, has often been worse than his bite, and many of his efforts to break the law have been checked by courts and executive branch officials. So, uh, apart from the section on the president's personal corruption, uh, what prompted, you know, if he was breaking, and as Jack said, he was breaking norms, uh, you know, what prompted some of these reforms? And as Paul Larkin of uh, the Heritage Foundation points out in the Q&A, uh, it's been said that the principal cause of problems is solutions. And so insofar as you think that reforms are necessary because Trump violated norms, why should we jump to legislation rather than wait to see how President-elect Biden performs? So just to answer quickly, Jack, I'll just give a really quick uh, initial answer. <clears throat> and that is, that is why we try to show in the book that there is an evolution of uh, questions about presidential authority across both parties that culminates in the sort of brazen norm busting and indifference to legal constraints uh, that we see in the Trump administration. So we try to put this in historical context. It's not that he's parachuting out of nowhere. You know, he has a view and unfortunately, some of it is supported in some unfortunate popular cultural assumptions that Gene Healy of the Cato Institute has written brilliantly about in his book about the cult of the presidency. Uh, so we've been headed in a dangerous direction for a while. And then you reach, a, well, I guess, a point of perfect storm where, you know, the uh, a, a president uh, is prepared uh, to say, I don't know why I can't direct the persecution of my political enemies. I don't know why I can't exercise a complete pardon power. I'm going to continue um, in this sort of uh, 
this particular portrayal of presidential thinking or sort of model of presidential speech that I'm laying out here, I'm going to continue to push the boundaries. And the question is, um, at that point, when you see that there are weaknesses that he's exploiting, there are practices up to that point that may have been unwise, and he's extending them in ever more radical directions, then it seems to me that in a balanced and careful way, you can decide where you want to step in with a reform, where reform is appropriate, before something really genuinely bad happens. And that becomes baked into practice and becomes sort of absorbed into the legal system as somehow kind of acceptable and consistent with current law. And that's why I don't think we're creating, I'd like to believe that we're not creating uh, more problems than we're solving here. But Jack, I, let me let me turn that back over to you. I just add something quickly to that. I mean, Paul's concern is a, is a good one. I agree with what Bob just said. I'll just say add a couple of things. Um, first, we were very sensitive throughout. We may not have gotten the balance right, but we we're very sensitive throughout the book to the notion uh, that that reforms can be weaponized and that the reform can be more costly than the prior practice. This certainly happened with the independent counsel statute after Watergate, and we learned from that episode. So we're sensitive to this concern throughout. But I'll just say, building on something that Bob suggested, you can't have reform of the presidency in the midst of a norm-breaking, uh, institution-defying presidency. You can only have reform of the presidency during a presidency that generally accepts these norms and where there's a Congress interested in, in conducting these reforms. We may, it's, it remains to be seen, we may be entering a period like that. And on some of these issues, um, and we can, we can argue about what should be on this list, but I'll give you a couple of examples of things that have been governed by norms in the past that we think there's a, an easy and good opportunity to change the norm constraints and the constraints. On things like tax disclosure, on things like financial corruption, conflict of interest and the like, those are the types of things that we think there's not much of a good argument for on the other side. Presidents have accepted those constraints for 50 years. Uh, Justice Scalia, when he was the head of the Office of Legal Counsel, said even though the conflict of interest statute doesn't apply to the president by its terms, of course every president would comply with, the, with those. We just think that, that we should not wait for another president to be norm-busting on those dimensions and that now is the time for reform on those dimensions. Turning to the Office of the Attorney General, we've gotten several questions about, because this was a, a central part of your uh, uh, book, about the, the independence of prosecutors' interference by the president with prosecutions, whether in terms of uh, going after his uh, uh, political enemies or helping his friends, uh, the appointments of special counsel, whether that's uh, uh, appropriate. Uh, should, I know that in your book, you rejected making the attorney general uh, more independent. Some states, for example, have separately elected attorneys general from the, the governor. So talk about the uh, independence of prosecutors, the role of the attorney general vis-a-vis -vis the president and, and in the executive branch. Far yeah, that, that one falls in my, that one falls in my jurisdiction. Um, so I'll just say, first of all, I'm glad you brought up the example of the attorney general possibly being an independent entity. In response to the Princeton professor's very good question about what do we mean by a powerful presidency? How do you measure that? Um, it, you know, ultimately, it's a qualitative judgment, and we would need to go into a lot more detail to explain what we want. I've been thinking about these problems for a quarter of a century, and there's no great metric for assessing when the president has too much or too little power. But one thing we're clearly against is 
constitutional reform of the executive branch, for example, to to break up the unitary executive, to make the attorney general an independent agency. We don't think that's possible now under the current constitutional construct, and we don't favor constitutional reform in that respect. And in that sense, we're committed to a strong presidency. So that's one way of kind of objective, objectively stating what we're against. Um, so this is a huge subject, in, uh, and it's been a perennial problem in the executive branch. You know, it's been a perennial problem going back to the 19th century, but especially since Watergate. How can the executive, how can the president, in whom the all of the executive power is vested and who is charged with the duty to take care to faithfully execute the law, given that constitutional commitment, how can we ensure that the rule of law applies to the president and senior executive branch officials? It's been a hard constitutional problem. We've gone through many different iterations of trying to, to come up with a solution. Um, and many of them have failed. And we don't think that the special counsel regulations worked especially well during the Mueller investigation for reasons we state. Our basic position is that there needs to be a mechanism for those type of investigations. Our basic commitment, I agree with Judge Ludig that an important question is what is the trigger for the appointment of a special counsel? Bob and I struggled with that, and we didn't maybe come up with the best possible solution. It's very hard, I think, to come up with one that is precise enough to be constraining while at the same time not so constraining that it gives the attorney general too little discretion to appoint. But our basic move, and I can go into more detail if you like, is to enhance, and this is counterintuitive for some people, we think that the attorney general has got to have primary authority over the legal issues. That You might see that as a constitutional matter. You might see it as a pragmatic way that the executive branch has to run. So we're, we're committed to that and to strengthening the executive branch control, uh, excuse me, the attorney general's control over the appointment and, and governance and supervision of a special counsel. But we also commit to, and this is somewhat controversial, a kind of accountability fact-finding function for the special counsel, and we try to protect that function. And so that's the basic ways, those are the basic ways that we try to reform, and again, the book goes into much more detail on this, those are the basic ways we try to reform and deal with this very difficult problem of how the, how the executive branch investigates itself consistent with Article 2. We've gotten a few questions about the post-election period and the actions and rhetoric uh, coming from the White House the last uh, month. Um, in 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 that view, would there be would you come up with additional recommendations for uh, what the president uh, to, to constrain the president uh, in terms of um, not muddying the waters about the legitimacy of elections and uh, questions along those lines? I'm, I'm happy to take that. I mean, I, I'm on my way back into the uh, senior advisor of the Biden campaign. So with that disclaimer, um, I'm going to express views that are entirely my own. I don't think they're terribly controversial. But I think we have seen, particularly with respect to the initiation of a transition, that we have some hard thinking to do about the current statutory framework. Uh, most of you are familiar, and I think you referred to it earlier, Ilya, with the controversy around ascertainment which has typically been non-controversial, by which the GSA administrator makes a judgment of who the apparent successful winner of the election is, and on that basis, provides support and funding for the transition. So this became a, a large political issue for the administration. 
the president uh, insists that he has not lost the election as recently as this morning. He says that uh, people need to be alert to massive additional evidence of fraud, uh, even though his attorney general yesterday contradicted him on this point, he seems to persist uh, in his claims. And so this translates back to the very awkward position in which the GSA administrator of all people uh, found herself uh, in her letter providing ascertainment uh, to the uh, Biden-Harris transition. She complains that she's the wrong person to do this, that it puts her in an impossible position, that it requires her in some way to take into account the president's refusal to concede or the initiation of recount or other election contests. I don't think that's correct. I don't think that's consistent with precedent. But it does suggest that we don't want that situation again, because as the 9-11 Commission uh, observed, the delay in transitions uh, is dangerous. It's extremely problematic. It delays the ability of an administration uh, to staff because it doesn't have the full services for background checks of incoming appointees available to it. Um, and in other respects, it's not ideal. The Biden-Harris transition did progress even in the absence of ascertainment for several weeks. And that I think was successful, but there comes a point where if we take these transitional support requirements seriously, uh, we don't want them caught up in an incumbent president's insistence that his administration stay with him on the messaging that he hasn't lost, that the election hasn't been decided. And of course, in those circumstances, he's not gonna want, as Trump did not want, the uh, ascertainment to be made. So. That just cries out for some attention when this election uh, is over and the inauguration of President Biden and Vice President-elect uh, Harris um, takes place. Are there any areas in which the Trump administration was more constrained than either conventional wisdom or kind of the mainstream media, I suppose, portrays, uh, or than uh, his predecessors? In other words, to what extent are any of your reforms driven by uh, pre-existing uh, growth or abuse of the presidency more than uh, uh, Trump himself? Yeah, I can take that. Um, so I can give you a couple of examples. Uh, Trump was, you know, he was actually more constrained than people have appreciated in my judgment about his ability to get the Justice Department to do his bidding. I mean, he violated a whole bunch of norms and there was, uh, what appeared to be uh, compliance with his wishes in the Justice Department. But for the most part, Bob Mueller, for example, the president tried to fire him, tried to stop that investigation. Volume two of the Mueller report is replete with the president's failed efforts to get his officials in the White House and the Justice Department to shut down the Mueller investigation. Same when it comes to prosecuting his political enemies. Um, so you know, the law and norms did some work in the Trump administration and arguably did quite a bit of work, even though there were serious problems and reforms needed. Areas where Trump was might not have been as abusive on executive power or as extreme on executive power as predators, um, certainly didn't have uh, um, the, the legal innovations and expanding presidential war powers that, is, that his predecessors did. And our proposals for war powers as we make war powers reform, as we make clear tracks a problem that goes back really to the 70s that presidents have been committing to, uh, excuse me, have been contributing to since the 70s. So that's an area where Trump certainly used unilateral war powers, but he didn't make legal innovations in war powers the way that Bush and Obama did. Um, you might argue, as we suggest in one of the first paragraphs of the book, that Sir Trump didn't use commander-in-chief override to the same controversial degree as George W. Bush. 
he didn't, uh, in my judgment, was not as aggressive in using uh, congressional delegations plus an uh, imaginative conception of the take care clause to extend regulatory authority in the executive branch. So Trump was not, uh, in every respect, the most abusive president we've ever had. He did, though, as I stated at the top of the program, uh, commit uh, novel forms of abuses that we think cry out for reform. Uh, picking up on your comment about war powers, that was an interesting uh, part of your book, I thought. Uh, can you talk about the constitutionality of the War Powers Act or uh, issues that you foresee potentially if your reforms uh, of that were, were put in place and somewhat related, relatedly uh, emergency powers? Uh, that's come up uh, a, a bit during the, uh, the, the, the Trump administration, although, as you note, you know, we're still in a national emergency from the Iran hostage taking 40 years ago from the Belarusian election frauds, not this year of 2006 and things like this. So kind of reform of, of, of emergency powers uh, didn't start with Trump and, and, and won't end with them. I'll take a crack at that. This, Bob and I have divided up the chapters and you're asking more questions about my chapters than his. Um, so emergency sorry, powers I'm not, uh, this is not intentional. <laughs> No, I know. I know. I just want to explain why I'm talking more. I would prefer not to be. Um, so emergency powers is easier to answer than war powers. It seems to me they're, they're except in the most extreme short-term emergencies, um, that Congress has given away those powers and can contract them quite a lot, consistent with the Constitution. To make a very long story short, the main problem with 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 is that Congress has given away, I think the Brennan Center counts 116 statutes that contain emergency authorizations or something like that. As you noted, there are dozens and dozens of emergencies still in place going back many decades. The National Emergencies Act has been a failure. Its idea was to put time limits on the uh, on these emergencies, but it hasn't. The central problem is Congress gave away the store and emergency powers at a time when legislative vetoes were still constitutional. Chada swept those away, and so you have all these delegations in place with no congressional control, and Congress hasn't clawed it back. Our main, I mean, this is a, you could write a book on how to reform emergency powers, and I think we, we propose that Congress give this a comprehensive look. But the main suggestion is, is to not make them limitless and to force the president to go back to Congress, both on the Insurrection Act and IEPA and other emergency powers force the president to go back to Congress after a certain period of time, depending on the type of emergency, and actually get affirmative consent. Uh, and, you, you know, there's some delicate questions there about timing and what the process looks like. But that strikes me as easily constitutional and doable in theory. I mean, whether it's politically doable or not uh, is unclear. The war powers resolution, that's a really tricky thing. And we have lots of war-related proposals related to the post-9-11 wars that doesn't involve the war power resolution. Uh, you know, clarifying the AUMF, uh, repealing some OLC opinions that we think went too far. The War Powers Resolution and its constitutionality, we think it's constitutional, and we think our reform proposals, which basically try to tighten up the War Powers Resolution, are constitutional. But that is a very, very, very large topic. And the truth is that there's not a lot of case law. There's a lot of executive branch law and a lot of academic commentary on that. Before I go to a, a final question, I think that would be apt and uh, offer a final word to each of you. Bob, is there a section of the book that for some reason I'm not asking you about that you would like to mention? 
No, no, no. This it's all good. We we um, I tend to ask Jack to take the first crack at the stuff that's squarely within uh, his well recognized uh, and commanding area of expertise and national security, international relations. And also, uh, we both have uh, different takes on, but um, Jack certainly is uh, on the whole question of the Justice Department's relationship uh, to uh, the executive, uh, to the presidency, um, with a slightly different uh, take. So one area that I, I, I do just want to come back to that we spent a lot of time on uh, is the special counsel regulations. And I think I mentioned at the beginning, uh, though we didn't do this in every case, in the case of uh, some consultative limits or constraints on the president's use of nuclear power, uh, in the case of uh, the special counsel regulations, and in a couple of other instances, we actually put specific language in. We didn't do that for every one of our reforms, but we have an appendices in which we try to lay out one version of legislative language that could be used to address the issue. I think we did that uh, to be as concrete as possible as we we're trying to be uh, throughout the book. And uh, we were, we, we thought at one point of doing it, but once we, we crossed number 50 uh, in, the, in the list of reforms that we might have consistent act regulations and um, uh, draft regulations and uh, statutes. The only last point I would make uh, that again goes to this rule of law question is there is a chapter and again, it's one of those examples where it would have to be adopted internally by an administration that raises questions about my dearly beloved former job of White House counsel, best job I ever had. But in connection with which we say, we think we start, the legal advisory function has to be moved more aggressively back into the executive branch, excuse me, back into the Department of Justice, uh, to the Office of Legal Counsel, that the White House counsel's office has grown uh, much more uh, I think riskily, if dangerously, would be too strong in size and influence, and that there are certain functions that are better and more credibly discharged out of the department and less susceptible to the pressures that lawyers operate under in the West Wing. So I just thought I'd add that as well. Running uh, rapidly out of time, I want to end with this question by Michael Para, who asks, is there a realistic chance that any of your proposals will be implemented by Congress? Any potential congressional sponsors? What is what are the most likely, the lowest hanging fruit? I, I, I could just mention one thing right off the top, Jack. Uh, that is, we already have had a chance to consult uh, with the House on the pardon power reforms and uh, the proposals that we put forward that Jack mentioned earlier, uh, the amendment of the law to make it very clear that the issuance of the pardon uh, can expose a president uh, to liability under the bribery statute and self-pardons, um, those two proposals are now reflected in the principal House bill uh, that uh, proposes to place some constraints on uh, presidential authority or enhance presidential accountability. Uh, I think there's there's room for that, particularly if we see a pardon fest in the next few weeks where the president's issuing pardons left and right. Uh, there may be a more pressure building for that. I think uh, mandatory tax disclosure and financial conflicts of interest, and even uh, some of the reforms that we propose for the Department of Justice um, and for constraints of the president's interference with the judicial process, uh, as in the obstruction of justice statute that we propose, once Republicans are not voting on these as a vote for or against Donald Trump, but there are Republicans who are willing to vote on that just on their merits under our golden rule, we think there's a chance those reforms could pass. 
that, uh, we're going to have to leave it there. Uh, we had a lot of questions come in, so I'm sorry I wasn't able to get to all of them. You can go to Cato's page to access additional materials related to uh, this event, including a link uh, to the book. Um, and with that, uh, we are adjourned. Thank you very much.